If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're ready, no more than ready, to have a major breakthrough in your business. You're hungry for change and you're hungry for growth. But do you know where to start? Or if you've already started but are feeling stuck, you need some help, someone to talk to about your business plan and how you can accelerate growth. That's why Tony Robbins is offering a free one-to-one business strategy session from one of his top business coaches, a $600 value, completely free, no strings attached. That's right. If you're listening right now, you can go to TonyRobbins.com slash CEO to sign up for your free session and get started on your own path to massive success. Ariel Levine is not a name you'd recognize, but something he invented is probably an app on your phone. He co-founded Waze, the world's largest traffic and navigation app. More than 250 million drivers worldwide use it, and the company was acquired by Google in 2013 for $1.1 billion. Since then, Uri has founded several other companies, like FeeX, a startup that reveals hidden fees you might not be aware of from your bank, and Engie, an app that can diagnose car problems so you arrive prepared at the mechanic. He's also creating innovative solutions to major problems in the U.S., like the cost of healthcare and public transportation. And don't worry, he's still obsessed with solving the traffic problem. As you can probably gather, Uri's mission in business is nothing short of brilliant, to disrupt inefficient markets and to solve big problems that save consumers time and money while also empowering them with information. In other words, he's creating real products for real people that solve real big problems. In this episode, Uri shares some of his key learnings from the Waze startup journey, from starting from scratch to a successful exit. But you're also going to hear the processes that he applies when he starts up or advises any company like figuring out product market fit, whether the problem he's trying to solve is actually a problem in the eyes of consumers, and his strategy behind hiring a winning founding team. He also talks about something that's pretty difficult for every business owner, when it's time to let people go. You're also going to hear how Uri allocates his time as a founder and serial entrepreneur in each phase of the startup process in order to properly support his team while also making best use of his own time. Uri is interviewed on stage by Scott Harris, a coach, mentor, and speaker at many of Tony's events, including Business Mastery, Tony's signature business event. Here's Scott and Uri. Firstly, thank you. Thank you. I know Tony is excited to have you here, is excited to have you share, as I am as well. Um, for those that, that, that don't know the Waze story, tell us the Uri story and tell us the Waze story, and then we'll get into some nitty-gritty. The magic of Waze is in the way that it's being built. And it's actually a crowdsource application that generates all the data that we, the drivers, are using while you drive, right? And so um, it's not only the traffic that we, it's kind of, uh, okay, this is obvious. It's actually the maps themselves, right? So when we started, the map was a blank page. And then when the first driver drove, we collected the GPS data from the device, and when we drove this GPS data on the blank page, we got to see something that looks like the route that the person traveled, right? Then we start to get that from a lot of drivers, we figure out, okay, this one's starting to look like a map, right? And if there is a, a lot of density, then we figure out that this is a highway versus a street, and if there is an intersection that uh, no one is making left turn, then no left turn is allowed, right? And if there is a road that there are 100 people going into one direction, and no one else coming that direction, that will be one way straight, right? <laughs> and if there is a road that there are 100 people going into one direction and only two coming that direction, that will be one way straight in Tel Aviv. <laughs> um, and, and essentially, we build a software that takes all of this data and generates the map, 
And now when we started to have more and more and more drivers, then we can generate the traffic information and help people to avoid that. Now, there are a few interesting things about that, because if I will have a time machine and I will roll back time 10 years ago and I will come here and tell you this same story before we start, you will tell me that will never work, right? Or this is the stupidest idea that I ever heard, or, right? or something like that. And, and not only that, when we started, the first version that we built was actually running on a PDA. Remember? Some long, long, long time ago, there were <laughs> dinosaurs, and then PDAs, and then Nokia phones. And today, we all have iPhones and Android phones, right? This long time ago is 10 years. Now, I want you to imagine, assume that we will meet here again 10 years from now, and we will have all this audience. I will need to remind you that we used to have iPhones and Android yep. phones and things like that. This yep. is the pace of innovation. Really this true. is how really fast true. things are changing. Well, and it's getting faster, not slower. It, it is accelerating, right? Yeah. Um, and so we, we started the company in 2007. Actually, we started the concept in 2007, and we went fundraising, and surprisingly, um, all the investors say no, right? And, and no, and no, and no, and, and I heard so many no's that, uh, that that was actually pretty discouraging. But we thought we are fighting to solve a big problem that it's worthwhile solving, right? And so we kept on trying, and we were able to raise funds only at the beginning of 2008, and this is where we started. First version running on a PDA, second version running on a Nokia phone, right? And only in 2009, we launched the service in Israel initially and then rest of the world. And, um, you know, you'll figure out that you would think that, okay, it, it, the concept can start from nothing, right? So we can start from a blank page. Um, and therefore, it should work everywhere. Now, the problem is well, it was not good enough, right? So there is no one in this room that is using Waze since 2009, right? Because if you would try that back then, uh, you will tell me that this sucked, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and you were actually right in that <laughs> sense, right? It was not good enough. And so this is what we did, right? We figured out from the system it doesn't work. We went and spoke with the drivers, and we got the feedback, and we heard what doesn't work for them. And so we went back to the drawing board. We built the next version. And we know that this is it, right? And so we released the next version, and we know that this is it, and it's not. And iteration after iteration after iteration after iteration, every time is a minor improvement. Every time is a baby step. Um, and it took us the whole year of 2010 to actually figure that out and, and came with something out that was actually good enough. Now, this is very, very important. Good enough and free wins the market. Good enough and free wins the market. That, that'd be the note that I'd be taking. I remember doing the study. Good enough and free wins the market. It's pretty powerful stuff. And the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. You don't need to be perfect. Going, if you try to build something that is perfect, you would lose the market to someone that is good enough. Can I ask a question? Because so often as entrepreneurs, we fall in love with our product, we fall in love with the thing that we built, and it takes a, 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 a challenge to go, actually, this isn't good enough, and, and, and I need to listen to feedback and do a new reiteration and innovation and so forth. What do you think is the stumbling block to people letting go of their old model or their old system and moving forward to a new one? 
So, um, you know, you look at all the successful consumer applications, and if I would ask 100 people in the audience, how did you hear about Waze, 99 of them will tell me we heard that from a friend, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, if you build a product that is good enough, and you start, so it's all about the product and not about how you promote that. And then eventually what happened is that people start to tell other people. The good enough needs to create value, right? If there is no value creation, then it's useless. Now, I have my own method of creating value, right? I start with a problem, and, and a big problem, right? Because if it's a small problem, if I'm the only person on the planet that actually have this problem, then shrink is going to be so much cheaper solution <laughs> than building a startup, share. right? But if a lot of people actually have this problem, then I would try to figure out what's the perception of the problem of the other people. Yeah. Because most of the consumer services, when you go back to the history of creation, they started from the perception of a single person, right? The founder. Mm -hmm. This is where it started. This is the problem where the person faced and realized that he can do something about it. Now, the next phase is actually understanding the perception of the problem of whomever you believe that actually is going to be the user. And once you do that, you encapsulate, you understand the problem, you understand the perception of the problem, then you go and build the solution. And so can I ask, how do you do that? Because if I think about it, you've got 10 different companies that you're a founder in or a chairman or a first investor in, and most of them your idea. When you've got a problem, whether it's you had a problem, you hated traffic, or any of your other companies like NG, and you hated you know, having to be told what to do by your mechanic, here's the problem. How do you then go and find out what other people's experience of that? How do you know if the problem is big enough to be solved? Do you just you start asking your friends and family? Do you, do you post it on social media? What do you do? So, so the general rule is that I would start with friends and family, but I have my own rule of speaking with 100 people. 100? And the reason is that uh, um, no one has friends and family, 100 people in the friends and family, right? <laughs> Even though that I have five kids, I still don't have 100 members of the family. Yeah. Now, the importance of the 100 people is that you have to speak with people that you don't know. Right, you've got to speak with people you don't know. Yeah. And you have to speak with other people that are not like you. And other people not like you, yeah. Um, and, and this is very, very important. Now, sometimes the problem is... Um, and by the way, it's about the problem and not about the solution. You don't even deal with the solution at this mm -hmm. phase. Even though that you have something in mind, you don't speak about the solution. You want to understand how painful the problem is and what's the perception of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you mentioned NG. Um, NG deals with the frustrations of going to the mechanic, right? They might not know about it. Tell them about it. Um, and you know, if I take my car to the mechanic, whatever they'll say, I'll say okay because I I don't know what's happening underneath the hood, right? And so I feel helpless, and and I don't like to feel helpless. And so I try to figure out what to do. And you know, if the mechanic will tell me that I need to replace the carburetor in my car, then I would say, okay, go ahead and do that, right? The only problem is that there is no carburetor in my car. They don't make car with carburetors for two decades now. And so we built an app that runs on the smartphones, connects to the car computer, doing the diagnostics for you, telling you what's wrong, and then asking mechanic to quote to repair that. So really empower the driver with the knowledge and with the ability to do price comparison. You've got some fans in the audience. And does that just come up one day because you're at the mechanics and you're frustrated by the problem? You're like, that's annoying me. I don't want to pay that bill. 
you know, I was frustrated with um, you. You feel like you are being ripped off, but but sure. you feel helpless because there's nothing that you can do about and it. So and so you go ask a hundred people that you don't know that are not like you, and you see what the perception and what their perspective on the problem is. Yep. In terms of, by the way, then then we find out that there is a research that indicates that. Uh, uh, the two most hateful service providers are dentists and, uh, and mechanics. Right? <laughs> uh, and so this is where people don't like Not our work. dentists and not our mechanics, but other dentists and other mechanics. <laughs> um, okay, great. And then, then what do you do? So how do you take that from an idea? Now you've got perspective on it. How do you then, what do you do? Do you go find some money? Do you put your own money into it? Where do you start? So, um, you know, it turns out that... Uh, um, the idea is very, very important. It might be attributed about 10% of the solution, and 90% is execution. Execution, yeah. Right, so execution is the hardest part. And, uh, um, and it usually would be about uh, choosing the right team and the right CEO for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I would start is I would start looking for the team or the CEO, and it might be someone that I worked with before, might mm -hmm. be uh, someone in younger in an entrepreneurship program that I mentor there. Um, and we will start to think about how to build that and how to develop that. Mm -hmm. And it will take me months before I will decide that this is the right person or the right team to do that. Mm -hmm. And what I want to find out during this period of time is that uh, um, the CEO is the right leader and the team follows them, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and that the CEO is capable of making hard decisions. Right, this is my T-shirt today. Tell right? us about your T-shirt. Making uh, easy decisions is easy. Making hard decisions is hard. What's some examples of hard decisions you think that people don't make? Um, you know, I, uh, I speak with a lot of entrepreneurs because I keep on building startups all the time, right? Yeah. And so I spoke with uh, a couple of dozens of entrepreneurs that their last startup failed. And I asked them why, right? And half of them said the team was not right. Yeah, sure. And so I kept on asking, what does it mean the team was not right, right? And so some of them told me, okay, we had this guy responsible for marketing and it was not good enough. And we had this guy responsible for engineering and it was not good enough and so forth. So not good enough is one reason. And then I heard another group of answers that we had uh, communication issues or something that I call uh, ego management issues, right? And, uh, and then I asked them, when did you know that the team is not right? And all of them knew within the first month. All of them knew within the first month. Now, just imagine when you hire a person into the team, how long does it take you to know that if this person is the right person to the team or not? It's always a month. Mm -hmm. It's always within the first month. Mm -hmm. So the CEO knows that this person or the team is not right after the first month, and it doesn't do anything, right? Now, just imagine for a second the rest of the team, right? They know as well that the team is not right. And they look up to the CEO to make the decision, right? Because uh, making easy decisions is easy. Making hard decisions <laughs> is hard. This is why no one wants to make the hard decisions, and they expect the CEO to make the decision. If the CEO doesn't make the decision, mm -hmm. then there are only two options, right? Number one, CEO doesn't know, which means that CEO is stupid. Mm -hmm. This is not good. Mm -hmm. Number two, CEO does know mm -hmm. and still doesn't make the hard decision. Mm -hmm. That's actually even worse. The CEO lacks the leadership yeah. of actually making the hard decisions. By the way, in both cases, the result is always the same. Yeah. The top performing people would leave. Mm 
Yeah. Uh, they would leave because they don't want to be in an organization that is unable to make hard decisions, and they have a choice. Totally. You, you don't know this because you just got here today, but do you guys remember all the way back to day one, we talked about uh, who am I, who do I need, and who do I need to get rid of? Do you guys remember that? And when you say that, because most of you love bugs, most of you are here, I'm the mission and the team and the vision. Some of you are like, no, I can't get rid of people. I don't want to sack people. But it not, doesn't just serve you. It doesn't serve the rest of your team if you've got someone who's not the right fit, not the right player. And truthfully, how many want to really serve people? Who wants to serve people? Raise your hand. Say, I. It truthfully doesn't serve them either. If they're in the wrong fit, in the wrong team, you're actually not serving that person either and inviting them to go somewhere else. You know, just imagine large organizations, right? And, and in any organization that is large enough, eventually there is a normal distribution of the, of the people, right? So, so normal distribution, here we have the top performing, here we have excellent people, good people, less than good people, and here we have people that shouldn't be here. Now, let's say that you run this organization and you want to improve the, the quality of the organization. When you hire another top performer, you definitely impact. When you fire someone that doesn't need to be there, the impact is dramatically bigger. And the reason is that everyone knows, right? If there is someone in the organization that shouldn't be there, everyone knows. Yeah. And if you take care of that, then everyone realizes that, okay, you are doing the right thing. And the impact, the overall impact is dramatically better. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, give me nice. That's very nice. Give me a hand for that. It's very nice. <laughs> I love that we've talked about how do you take an idea and make it real. And the first thing you talked about was building a team. Like that's the very first thing, right? Find the CEO and then have the CEO build out the team. Tell me, if you look at all the different businesses you've done, they've all been you solving a problem, whether it's Move It, which is sort of ways for public transport, whether it's NG with the mechanics, whether it's Fairfly with the flights, when you book a flight, what happens if the price goes up, ups and down? Um, what do you think is next? What, what other problems or frustrations do you have in your life that you think are problems that need to be solved of significant perspective? What, do you, what other industries out there need to be disrupted? So, so few thoughts, right? So, so number one, I'm not done with traffic because, uh, okay. you know, you look at traffic jams today and you tell yourself, okay, this is actually more severe than it was 10 years ago, right? Yeah, and this is down. after we built ways, right? And so, <laughs> so the problem did not disappear. Maybe we feel a little bit more confident when we are driving that we are actually outsmarting the traffic, but the general problem of the traffic is still there. Um, I'm looking at uh, medical services. Right. So just imagine, and, and I want you to think about the following, okay? The medical services in the U.S. are five times more expensive than they are in Germany. Yeah. Now, it's not that they are better. They are simply five times more expensive. Now, when you realize that they are five times more expensive and they are not better, then obviously there is sort of waste throughout the value chain. And it's pretty big. And so I'm trying to figure out that. Um, you know, I'm looking at uh, um, life insurance as a major problem in the U.S. Um, I would say more than half of the people have the wrong life insurance. In the, um, and we are buying whatever this, the people that are selling us are selling, right? Sure, I don't understand. I just signed the form. <laughs> and, uh, um, and the reality is that we probably can build something better here. Uh, so I'm looking at, uh, at a lot of problems uh, to try to address. Um, yeah, it's exciting. 
Now let me try uh, another one. Uh, when you travel to Europe and you buy goods there, you actually entitled to get the VAT back. Now, when you try to do that, then you'll figure out that 95% of the cases, people simply fail to get their money back because of complexity, because of long lines, because of different issues, right? And so I'm building Refundit that is about to make it as simple as, you know, take a picture of your receipts, your passport, your boarding pass, and get the money back. As simple as that. Thank you, because I go to Europe every year, it's very nice. Can I ask, what's the process? Because this, you mean, you, I mean, well, let's just talk about when you when you sold Waze. How does that happen? How do you get a billion dollar phone call? How does does Google just call you and say, "Hey, we want your your"? How does that happen? And how do you feel on that day? Actually, exactly like that. Right? Really. And, and so when when Google reached out to us, they uh, they reach out with a one page term sheet. One page term sheet. And they said we're gonna make the, we're gonna close the deal in a week, and we simply said yes. Uh, <laughs> And uh, look, at the time, you know, you look today at Waze and you ask yourself, um, was that the right move or the right decision or not? And, and this is very important to remember. There are right decisions and no decisions, right? Because when you make a decision, you don't know what it would be like if you would make a different decision. Right? And so we tend to tell ourselves, okay, um, you know, Waze probably worth today 10 times, right? So maybe $10 billion because there are so many more users and so many more people using that and they figure out the business models and so a lot of good reasons to say it's worth more. But whether or not it would get here to this position, we don't know that. Yeah. And throughout the history, you know, you look at the uh, Netflix asking Blockbuster to acquire them and Blockbuster saying no twice, right? And we know what happened to Blockbuster and we know what happened to Netflix. And we kind of say, this is how can they not see that? Yeah. Or uh, Yahoo uh, not acquiring Google for $2 million, right? And so different reason uh, that, uh, that you look at, at the decision at the point of time that the decision is being made, and it's always the right one. Uh, because you don't know what it was, what it would be like if you would choose a different path, right? Sure. If Yahoo would acquire Google in 1996 or 1997, would Google become as significant as it is today? The world would be very different right now. We don't know that. Yeah, yeah. Right? And and so um, and so we we said yes to the to the acquisition, and uh, um, and this process actually leads to. Um, in particular, we say yes because we knew from past experience of Google is that they, they don't break things that work, right? And so they believed in the vision that we had and they wanted to keep the vision up and running, right? So helping drivers to avoid uh, and, and you know, outsmart traffic. Um, and for me, I left. The day after the acquisition, I, I left. Yeah. So I can build more startups and this is what I'm doing since then. It's kind of cool. Um, it's kind of cool with a billion dollars. Tell me, what is it? Because you've, you've got so many great ideas. You're doing so many things. I think I asked you backstage, what does your day look like? What does a day look like in a serial entrepreneur's life? You're involved. You're a board member or a chairman or a co-founder or an investor in, in 10 different companies. What, what does a day look like in your life? So, uh, um, you know, I would say that uh, the first year of a startup is uh, the most critical one. First year. There are two things that happen on the first year. The product market fit is being figured out. Mm -hmm. And the DNA of the company is being established. Mm -hmm. 
right? And these are the two most important things of the journey uh, of a startup, right? Because you, when you look at the applications that you are using or services that you are using today, and I would ask you, so what is the difference between the application that you are using today and the first time that you have used that? And the reality is that there is no difference. Right? Product market fit is being figured out early days. Now, if you haven't figured out the product market fit, then probably the company will die, and you'll never hear about that. But those that you heard about them, they figure out the product market fit rather early. Mm -hmm. and, and this period of time is where I invest most of my time uh, in mentoring the CEO, in helping the team, in guiding them. Um, and uh, um, the first year, um, that's probably meeting the CEO um, every week, maybe twice a week usually in my kitchen. So I have uh, wow. um, my kitchen where everything happens. Right? I love uh, it. Um, and, and this is where we are starting to build things. And over time, they need less and less and less of my time. Right? And mm -hmm. so my time is being freed up. I can start another one. Got it. And so this is my, my method, right? I know. It's very nice. It's kind of like a lesson. Tell me, um, if I'm in this room and I'm in business and I'm not a startup and I've already been going and I'm, I'm, I'm either in prime or maybe I'm starting to age and decay, like if I'm not a startup and I'm not an infant but I'm somewhere else in the journey, what, what, what wisdom do you have for someone who's thinking, oh, but I can't start a new business. I've already got this business. What, what, what wisdom or coaching would you have for them? So, so, you know, we, we spoke about making hard decisions and getting rid of the people that do not fit. Uh, this is critical. Mm -hmm. You will not believe how impactful it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, um, and this is something that, uh, um, you know, it, it's something that you can do throughout the organization. By the way, if you are not sure, if you have a large organization, then you can run a survey, very simple survey, with two questions. And the questions are very simple. Um, if, for, for each one of the employees, right? If we're going to start a new team, who would you like to um, have with you on that team? Right? And these are the key performers. Now, it doesn't matter if they like this person to be on their team because this person is good and nice or excellent and okay, or it doesn't matter what is the mix. The fact is that they want to work with this person. Mm -hmm. um, now, the opposite question is, who don't you want to have on your team? And this person, you should fire. Because they do not create value to the organization. They actually create more damage than help. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is critical. Um, now, the, the, other, uh, the other aspect that we need to look at is, you know, sometimes... We expect the CEO to think about the next quarter and, and this coming year and so forth. But from time to time, we need to get out of this point of view and look into the future and look five or ten years down the road yeah. and start to ask ourselves how the market will be different in ten years from now. Yeah. Now, when you start to think about it, then the next question would be if my business is still relevant in the 10 years from now market. Now, if it is, then keep on going, right? So improve and, and, and you know, optimize and improve, optimize and improve yeah. the organization and the, and the output, the organization and the output all the time. But if your answer to 10 years from now, whatever I'm doing right now is irrelevant, 
So let's just imagine that there will be autonomous vehicles, right? There will be, and, and maybe it will not take you 10 years, but let's assume for a second that 10 years from now, there are autonomous vehicles, and, and instead of uh, um, us driving our own cars, um, the cars will drive us, right? Because if you look at this industry, in the last 100 years, nothing changed, right? In reality, 100 years ago, the most sellable car was Ford, and it was black, and it was doing about 16 miles per gallon. And last year, it was Ford, and it was black, and it was doing about 17 miles per gallon. But the reality is that we drive cars the same way that our parents did, and the same way that our grandparents did. Nothing has changed. We go into the driver's seat, and we have steering wheels, and we have pedals, and we drive the cars ourselves. Once cars can drive by themselves, maybe we don't need to own a car. Maybe what we need to own is, is an app that we click on that, and the car shows up, and we tell the car takes us wherever, and the car takes us there, and then we click on the app again, and the car disappears, right? Now, if this is the case, we are changing the business model, right? So instead of buying cars, we're going to buy a service per mile, per hour, per whatever, right? The total number of cars that will be sold will be dramatically lower than it is today. The total number of mileage that is going to be driven is going to be dramatically higher than it is today. If you're a car maker and you don't switch the business model, you will die. If you have a parking garage and you don't switch the business model or you don't get rid of that, you will die. If you're selling car insurance and you sell it per vehicle and not per mile, you will die. So many disruptions. You know, you just imagine the next generation, they will not drive. The generation after that, when we will tell them that we use drive to drive cars, that we own three cars, they will not believe us when we will tell them that the garage won't be at the front of the house anymore. Right. And, um, And now, if you're in this business, and you start to ask yourself, am I going to be irrelevant 10 years from now? The answer is no, you're yeah. not relevant. Yeah. And if you're not relevant, then you cannot keep on going in the same trajectory that you believe is going to happen because someone else is going to become the market leader of the future and you're not even ready for that. Yeah. The Tony Robbins Podcast is a collection of interviews and stories and is produced by the Tony Robbins team. Copyright Robbins Research International.